we are here to remember the resurrection. And in particular, we are here today to remember and to concentrate on some of the implications of the resurrection. As I think about Easter each year, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I, I want to do more than just tell the story again, not because the story itself isn't important, not because it's stale. It's difficult often for us to hear the same stories over and over again and not see them as stale. That is much more of a problem with us, of course, than it is with the Scriptures themselves. But I think it's important for us not only to tell the story, which we read a bit earlier from John chapter 20, but also to tease out the implications of the resurrection. So, the big question for us on Resurrection Sunday is not only what happened, but, but so what? Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 21 is a benediction that we often use at the end of our worship gatherings. In fact, we will do that today because you'll understand it a bit better as we pick it apart detail by detail. But the benediction itself is a fitting Easter sermon. The Hebrews, those to whom this letter were written, were struggling. They were struggling to, to hold on to Jesus, to endure in their faith. And throughout the 13 chapters of this letter, the author talks about Jesus being a great high priest and as the means whereby the Hebrews could hold on. There were many pressures upon them, pressures from opponents without, internal pressures within their own flesh, and the normal struggles of everyday life in a yet fallen, imperfect world. They were facing difficulty after difficulty. And the author was concerned that those who he wrote to hold on. In many ways, this is no different than how we are today. This has, I think, without a doubt, been the hardest year yet for us as a church family. We have had people leave the faith. We have seen marriages nearly come apart. We have seen sickness after sickness, some diagnosable, some not yet. We have suffered loss this year. We have seen people suffer for the sake of their stance for Jesus and His gospel. It has been, without a doubt, the hardest year of ministry for the elders. And so many of us are crying out either verbally or some of us internally, how long, O Lord, you call us to endure, but, but how long? And the writer of Hebrews, knowing this for his people, and under inspiration of the Spirit, these words are for us as well. This benediction is a prayer of faith and is a promise of blessing that God would enable us to endure. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, the author wraps up his letter and says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. This is a prayer for blessing. It is a promise, a reminder of what is already ours in Christ, and there are implications for the way that we endure and walk in faithful worship. We do well to emphasize the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That is, in so many ways, the foundation of who we are. We serve a Savior who has reconciled us to the Father through His own death. But without the resurrection, we only have half of a gospel. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most to be pitied if Jesus Christ has not assured us of an eternal, sin-vanquished life. The resurrection, however, promises us, assures us that eternal life is there for the taking for those who will trust Jesus. And in the here and now, we can walk in assurance that we need not serve sin. Jesus has already conquered sin in those who have been united to Him. In the here and now, we don't sin because we have to. We sin because we want to. Sin is an illusion of happiness, and we give in to the illusion. This sin, however, is contrary to our new nature. And the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit, convicts His own when sin occurs and reminds us that though at first the sin seemed sweet, it leaves a bitter aftertaste that cannot satisfy. And so, the crucifixion of Jesus brings reconciliation, bringing us back to the Father, assuring our pardon. But through the resurrection, the finality is brought to pass, and we are transformed with the hope of life here and forever. So, ultimately, the resurrection seals God's eternal covenant with His Son, wherein the Trinity made a covenant with one another that they would renew image bearers, those made in their image who fell into sin. They purposed to restore to themselves that they might once again bear forth His image. The resurrection promises that. So, through the crucifixion, the image bearers are forgiven and brought back to God. And through the resurrection, the image bearers are restored and promised that one day they will be perfect image bearers once again, and they will fellowship with Him forever. Therefore, the resurrection assures for us restoration, those of us who were alienated by sin. So, Resurrection Sunday is for sinners those who have not yet come to God in faith in Jesus, that they might trust the one who alone is the way to be restored to God, that through Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death, that He bore God's wrath on your behalf, and through His resurrection, He offers you eternal life and renewal in the here and now. It's, it's for sinners, but it's for saints saints who sin. Resurrection Sunday is for us as well, that we might exult in our risen Lord who 
promises us that we will live with Him forever and answer the question, how long? And even now, He's restoring us, healing our sin-stained consciences, giving us lasting treasure that sin can never, ever satisfy. And in Hebrews chapter 13, the resurrection is linked to renewal, and that will be our task today to see how that works itself out. I want to see two major points in this text. They're not necessarily sequential, but there's two major thoughts in these two verses before us today, and they are held in tension, which is often true in the Scriptures. We find two truths with which we might see competition, but somehow in God's providence, He holds them together in perfect tension. The first of those today is that God our Father raised Jesus from the dead and has given us great and precious promises in Him. God our Father raised Jesus and has given us great and precious promises in Him. Peter talks about this in his second epistle where he says that we have been granted great and precious promises in Jesus that we might become partakers of the divine nature. The incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God took on human flesh, which is mysterious and mind-boggling, and that He died and that He was raised again, and that through simple faith in Him, granted by the Spirit, we become partakers of the divine nature. These truths blow our minds. They are mind-boggling. They are hard to comprehend. But this text is pregnant with promises. And because God the Father has raised His Son from the dead, He has linked us to Him in union and has granted us promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Apostle Paul tells us, because of Him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, theologically and, and somehow in a mysterious union, God actually unites us to the Son of God. The Father does this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In some mysterious, inexplainable sense, we are seated with Christ already. So God our Father has raised Jesus, and in doing so, has united us to Him and given us great and precious promises. And so, we, we see this here in Hebrews 13 in this benediction. Here's another example of a benediction, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says there, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. There's an implication here that we should pursue holiness. The same is true here in Hebrews chapter 13. But primarily, these benedictions are not calling us to obedience, though that's implied. Primarily, these benedictions are prayers that we might obey and promises that we will be enabled to do so because we are restored image bearers after we come to Jesus, trusting in His death and resurrection. So, a benediction is a reminder of what is already ours in Christ. It's an invocation of a blessing upon those who hear it, and it's a pleading for divine favor. But what are the blessings that flow to us as those who have been united to Christ by the Father? We're going to look at a few together today. So, what are the benediction blessings here in this text? I want you to take some time to take some notes here. This is going to be the kind of thing that you've got to meditate on. It's going to be the kind of thing that you've got to work on getting down into your heart and to beat it into your head. We have a tendency to doubt and to fear and to wonder if this God who is full of love really does love us and really is for us in the way that He says He is. So, I want you to to chew on the blessings that are promised in this benediction that Resurrection Sunday assures for us. First of all, God planned and brought to pass our reconciliation. Notice here at the beginning of verse 20, He is called the God of peace. He makes peace with His enemies. And if you know the story of redemption, they did not come to Him offering sacrifices. He came after them, just like He did in the garden, just like He did to the prodigal. The eternal design of Father and Son was to pursue sinners. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 says to us, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more Shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some of you have experienced this on a human level. You have been estranged through perhaps fault of your own or perhaps the fault of another, but generally it's mutual fault. You have, some of you, experienced the the reconciliation of a relationship that was formerly broken. You know what it's like to taste the bitterness of of being separated from one that you love and one who formerly loved you intimately. You understand how it feels to to go through the brokenness and then to come back to the sweet measure of relationship being restored. Some of you can only conceive of that, though, on a human level because you know what it's like to have the bitterness of rejection and broken relationships. 
But whether you have tasted it or not, we hope in the reconciliation of God, and it is all the sweeter because it is far greater, far more intimate, and far more full of promise than any human relationship because we were the enemies of God. Yet our God is characterized by peace. He, he speaks peace to us. He sacrificed His own Son. Briefly, they became, became separated in some mysterious sense. The, the sin of, of the humans was placed on the eternal Son of God. And through His rejection and through His sacrifice, we were brought back to the Father as reconciled children. This is astounding that God did not have to be bought off. He pursued it. He planned it. This benediction in Hebrews chapter 13 promises us that part and parcel of the reconciling work of God is to do so through resurrection. So on Resurrection Sunday, we are promised that the God of peace reconciles us to Jesus and to Himself. Secondly, this text promises us that God loved His Son and loved us, and He showed this when He raised Him from the dead. Peter preaches at Pentecost, now an emboldened preacher after having rejected the Son on the night of His crucifixion. And he says to the crowds who are listening, he, King David, he's speaking of him, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The crowd responds, and they're cut to the heart, and they say to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God showed His love for His Son because He would not allow Him to suffer corruption. Psalm 16 prophesied this promise, and Peter takes that up in the first Christian sermon, and speaks of the resurrection. And he talks about the implications of this, that in loving the Son, He loved us. So, in allowing His Son to be crucified and then purposing to raise Him from the dead, like the crowds in Jerusalem that heard Peter's sermon the benefits flow to us. Now we can repent and we can be baptized and we can follow Jesus and be restored to Him. And the benediction of Hebrews 13 promises us that God loves His Son and by extension loves us. And the mystery is that God has brought us into the communion of the Trinity. The perfect love that existed before the foundation of the world between Father, Son, and Spirit, we now join in. Jesus prayed this in John 17 before He would be arrested in the very next chapter. He prays to the Father, may they be one with us. Mysterious language, but full of promise. And God loved His Son and would not allow Him to suffer corruption 
And he did this because he loves us as well, that we might not suffer corruption. A third promise in this text is that Jesus, our Passover lamb, he is called that by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus, our Passover lamb, is our chief shepherd. Think about that. The lamb is also the shepherd. Psalm 23, which is so familiar to many of you, the illusion of of Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the covenant-keeping, self-existent one who watches over His people and takes care of them, it is no mistake that the apostles take up that title, the one that Jesus gave Himself in John chapter 10, that they take up this title and ascribe it to Jesus. This is a subtle way of ascribing deity to Jesus. Because Yahweh, God, is the shepherd of His people, but but Jesus is also the shepherd of His people. What if we were to take Jesus' name, and I don't think this is in any way irreverent, and read it into Psalm 23? Jesus Christ is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus Christ makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus Christ leads me beside still waters. Jesus Christ restores my soul. My Savior leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, Jesus, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You, Jesus, prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, Jesus, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord Jesus with Father and Spirit in the communion of the saints forever. Do you see the promise here in Hebrews 13? The Father raises the chief shepherd of the sheep from the grave and promises us that not only are we reconciled and promised eternal life, but Jesus will shepherd us for forever. I said to you earlier, certainly this is the hardest year we have ever faced as a church, but Jesus is with us. For those of you who are yet hurting today, Jesus is with you. He is with you in your poverty He is with you in your anger and your doubt. He is with you in your fear. He is with you in your heart-breaking frustration. He is with you in your hurting marriage. He is with you in the frustration of raising children. He is with you when you are tired and weary. He is with you when you lust. He is with you when you are greedy. Your Savior Jesus is with you, and He is your shepherd, and He will never let you go. He says to us in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd and his sheep hear his voice. And I say to you today that your father who raised him from the dead has given you his son to take care of you and he always will. The fourth promise in this text is that we have been atoned for and sanctified by his blood. The idea seems to be in this text that because Jesus' sacrifice, His atoning work on the cross was satisfactory, because He lived a perfect life and did not sin in Himself, 
And because he was the eternal second person of the Trinity, that the Father accepted this and then finished the work of redemption by raising him from the dead. And through his blood we have been atoned for and sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, the writer says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, I'm losing my place here, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then later on in chapter 10, the writer goes on to say, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance, The blood of Jesus, according to the writer in chapter 12, cries out, mercy. Those of us who have trusted Jesus have been atoned for and sanctified by his blood. So when the writer here in chapter 13 says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, God has approved of his atoning work through the blood of the eternal covenant. He's saying that that we've been atoned for and, and we can trust him to make us new. Formerly, there was hostility between us and God, and, and now that has been done away with, and we are at peace with God. Notice here that the writer talks about the eternal covenant. It says, past dimensions and future dimensions. We've already said today that in the past, the Trinity covenanted together to bring about redemption. There was, there was no shock, no surprise that the world would fall into sin. And the wonder of all wonders is that God made the world anyway. Many of us suffer from analysis paralysis. We think about things from a jillion different angles, and if we have any conception that they're going to go poorly, we just don't go down that path. Sometimes we think that God made the world and it all got messed up, and then He had to kind of react to it and make the best of it. It's not the case. God made the world knowing full well that it would fall headlong into sin, and yet He made it anyway. Why? Why? Why create a world that he knew would fall into sin? That he might highlight his grace. Now, from eternity past, the Trinity has been gracious. But is grace fully understood if it is not shared? Is is love fully comprehended if it is not tasted? And so it seems sort of logical that the Trinity though they did not need a world with image bearers, that they would make a world with image bearers upon whom they would pour out their love and it would take great love. 
that this covenant of redemption, this eternal covenant, has, has future dimensions as well. This means that after we have been brought back into reconciliation with the Father, we don't have to keep earning it. It's settled and it's done. The writer of Hebrews again and again calls this a new covenant. It's different than the old covenant. The old covenant looked forward to the new covenant when Jesus would answer all of God's promises to Israel and to the rest of the world and bring people back into relationship with Himself. Some of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul. Sproul's an important evangelical American scholar. <clears throat> He's written a series of children's books. He's written a lot of very heavy theological works which have benefited many adults, but he's written some great children's books. I know some of you have them, and if you're looking for good material for your kids, I encourage you. But I love them too. One of uh, his best books that he's written for kids is called The Lightlings, the L-I-G-H-T, Lightlings. And the Lightlings are these, these little creatures, and they're created by the good creator, and they glow. They reflect the glory of the one who made them, and they're happy. But one day, they, they turn from the one who made them, and their light goes away. They become dim, and they live in the shadows and the darkness, and they're miserable. But one day, through the power and love of the one who is light and gave them life, He comes back to them and restores the image, gives them their light back, and they enjoy Him once again, and they reflect Him once again. And that's what the eternal covenant does for us. Planned before history, ratified on the cross and through the resurrection by the Father and the Son, brought to us in faith by the Spirit, and kept eternally through the promises of God. The fifth promise in this text is that Jesus is our faithful high priest who represents us before God. So he's the one who pleads the merits of the covenant. He says to the Father, look what I have done. Pardon your children. They are in me. Accept my sacrifice. I will take their sin. I will give them my righteousness. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the apostle says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, your Savior is pleading His merits to the Father. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in chapter 10, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Jesus is our faithful high priest who represents us before God. These two short verses are full of promises. Like a father who should thoughtfully prepare a good blessing for his children, 
Generally, this is the father of the bride at the wedding reception after the wedding. A father who is worth his salt, who loves his daughter and his new son-in-law, will thoughtfully prepare ahead of time a speech. He'll hold some glass with some sort of sparkling liquid in front of them, and he will speak words of blessing over them. He will talk about how he raised that little girl and how he's loved her his whole life, and how he prayed for this boy who's now sitting next to her, and how he wants them to have a happy life, how he wants them to stick together when time gets hard, how he wants them to raise godly children that they, the grandparents, will help love and bless, how he wants them to be happy, how he wants them to walk together through the storms and the happinesses of life. He speaks blessing over them. That's what this text does. This text speaks blessings over you today. And like a daughter can sit and listen to her father and think of happy times, knowing full well that that father has loved her and always will love her, I say to you today that God our Father loves us. And these promises that are in front of you and so many more are yours in Christ. So, God our Father raised Jesus and has given us great and precious promises in Him. And as a result, because of all this, we must pursue faith-filled worship. So, so primarily this text is not calling us to obedience, but it's implied. And here's the tension. God provides the enablement for obedience because of all the blessings He's given us. And we are to respond in faith. So as a result of all that we have heard, we must pursue faith-filled worship. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is calling these people to faithful endurance despite the very real pressures that are all around them. And I say to you today, whatever the pressures are around you that, that, might, that might call you to quit, that might... That might bring you so much grief that you want to give up. I say to you, and I say that we collectively must, must pursue faith-filled worship. And there's a reason why I state it like that. I'm not just calling you to obey. I'm calling you to walk in faith and the promises that are yours. Remember, the resurrection is necessary if image bearers are to be restored This is the purpose of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that we might be brought back to God, brought back to worship. What is the purpose of all these blessings? Well, we see it in verse 21. God has done all this for us that we might be equipped with everything good to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So this is a prayer for blessing. It's a promise of what is ours. But the implication is that we have what we need, that we might do His will, and that we might glorify Christ. So as a result, we, we have faith-filled hearts looking to Jesus, worshiping Him. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. We saw earlier that we are seated with Christ. Paul said that in the first part of Ephesians 2. But Paul goes on to say in verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are as workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. 
Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Is it that we should obey or is it that he helps us obey? And the answer is, yes, it's both. So we are to obey, but only through faith filled worship. Galatians chapter 2, how do we do this? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Colossians chapter 2, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, Paul implies, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You and I are called to obedience. Obedience is not a dirty word, but it's an obedience that is supplied and enabled by God. So as a result of all the promises that are ours in Christ, we are to pursue faith-filled worship. So what are the benediction expectations? We've talked about the benediction blessings. What are the benediction expectations? Well, first of all, we're called to faithful endurance, and I will not take time to read all those verses that are on the screen in front of you. If you want to jot a few of them down, you can go back and study them. I put them up there merely to make a point as you see the volume of the verses listed on the screen again and again and again and again, almost ad nauseum, almost irritatingly, the writer says, endure, endure, don't give up, don't turn your back. Keep on, keep pressing on, keep worshiping. I will read for you a couple so that you sense the, the, the thrust of what the writer is trying to say. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, the writer calls the saints to endurance. He says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Are you there today? Some might be. You're hiding it. We have seen others this past year do that. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is tricky. Sin would grab us and ensnare us. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So as God called us to Himself eternally, yeah, Hebrews 13 tells us, an eternal covenant. And yet we must hang on. And turn with me, if you don't mind, to chapter 12. These verses are probably pretty familiar to you. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, these Old Testament saints, these people who turned from God and did not trust Him, for if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
And grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. It cost the death of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And as we see the costly nature of our redemption, we understand that we are called to worship. God loves His image bearers and is jealous for His glory and has renewed us and is renewing us and one day will fully renew us that we might experience Him in perfection. So we are called to faithful endurance. And we are called to glorify Jesus. The text tells us that. Jesus is to receive glory forever and ever. Well, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we fight sin and pursue righteousness. You're probably relatively familiar with Romans chapter 6. We took our time through that as we taught verse by verse through Romans not long ago. But in chapter 6, just to briefly rehearse it, the apostle says that we have been united to Christ in His death and united to Christ in His resurrection Because we have been united to His death, we are dead to sin. We need not serve it. And because we have been united to Him in resurrection power, we have the ability to choose righteousness. Therefore, Paul says we can fight sin and we can choose righteousness. Jesus never sinned. He is perfect and holy. And He delighted in doing the will of His Father. And as He has made us His own, we glorify Him by fighting sin and pursuing righteousness. This is a demonstration that we do not take His grace lightly. We are thankful for what He has done for us. We glorify Jesus furthermore by reflecting His goodness. In 1 John chapter 2, we are told that we are to walk like Jesus walked. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, we find the fruit of the Spirit is listed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who perfectly embodied love? Peace, patience, kindness. The perfect man, the God-man, who was full of love, who was full of peace both with his Father and toward mankind, who was full of patience with evil sinners, who was kind and gentle, who was good and faithful, and full of self-control. Jesus embodied these characteristics and attributes. And now He has given us His Spirit to remind us of what He was like and to enable us to walk likewise. So we're like mirrors. Too often we stare in the mirror at our own likeness, admiring ourselves like the evil stepmother from Snow White. But it's never quite satisfying enough because all we see is the ugliness. Our mirrors are not to reflect our own likeness. Our mirrors are to be pointed at the sun, reflecting His likeness. As we are made more like Him, we reflect His love and His goodness and His kindness and His gentleness. So we glorify Jesus by becoming more like Him, which is the work of the Spirit. But we engage in this by faith because I must choose to be loving and I'm enabled to be so. I must choose to be gentle rather than harsh, but God enables me to be so. I must choose to be faithful rather than flighty and irresponsible and self-focused and selfish, but I'm enabled to do so. 
So I glorified Jesus by fighting sin and pursuing righteousness. And even more specifically, I glorified Jesus when I reflect His goodness to the world that's watching, saints and sinners alike. And lastly, I glorified Jesus, we glorified Jesus, by proclaiming His gospel. It's very interesting in Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus is resurrected, that He comes to His disciples And he says to them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, the resurrected Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In Romans chapter 10, The apostle says, how then will they, those who are not yet reconciled to God, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So I say to you, You glorify Jesus when you proclaim His good news. He is the Lamb of God and will forever be so. And He has called us to proclaim His good news to those who are far off. And you glorify the Son of God and you honor His sacrifice and you trust in His powerful resurrection when you proclaim His good news to those who have not yet embraced it. Brothers and sisters, I tell you that your labor is not in vain, and this is true because of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, because of the benediction the promises of God, we can trust that He who has raised Jesus has given us great and precious promises. And I want you to swim in the depths of that ocean today. But as a result, we must pursue faith-filled, enabled worship. So, as a response to Resurrection Sunday, if you have not yet embraced Jesus if you are pursuing your own righteousness and you are caught by the deceitfulness of sin, turn to Him in faith. He will take your sin and He will give you His righteousness. And these promises, both now and for forever, will be yours. Today may be the day of salvation. Let us help you with that. But for you saints, swim in the ocean of God's love today. As a faithful response, trust in His enablement and His goodness that we might pursue Him in endurance, glorifying Jesus every day. Let's trust Him and let's pray.